British Spy Stories, Season 1 Spy or Traitor? Episode 13 The unusually hot September sun bounces off the restaurant tables in the grounds of the Grand Hotel du Cap Ferrat. Sebastian Ulrich walks out from the main building, a purple bruise evident around one eye. He sits at a table where Larry Robinson is already eating lunch. How is it? says Robinson, nodding at the bruise. It's nothing. What was she on, that girl? Robinson smirks under his sunglasses. She was crazy, mumbles Ulrich, as a waiter appears and takes their order. We need to talk about this pickup, says Robinson. You've got the information, Larry. I only got an outline. My guys need times and dark numbers. They'll get it, says Ulrich. How much gear? Twenty mil, Robinson whistles. Gogan Molly. I need some guarantees this time. For what? That you're not gonna end up with most of the haul and I get fucking nothing. Robinson starts to raise his voice. I got a million of gear last time, and paid two for it. It ain't happening next time. Keep your cool, Larry. You keep your end of the bargain and I'll keep mine, says Robinson. But if you screw me over, my guys will come calling. Don't threaten me, Larry, says Ulrich. This is my operation. Give me those details, he sneers, and returns to devour his food. A bodyguard comes up to Ulrich and hands him a folded piece of paper, which he opens and reads. Son of a bitch, he says to no one in particular. What is it? says Robinson. A job I paid good money for. Didn't come off? No, mumbles Ulrich. Is that anything to do with our job? Nothing to do with it, says Ulrich decisively. What then? A contract I have out. They didn't kill him, says Robinson, mid-chew. Her, actually. Another girl causing you problems, Ulrich. You losing your grip. If you can't control the ladies, can you control this trade coming in? Robinson is laughing. Ulrich gets up and grabs Robinson's hair on the back of his head and tries to shove his face down into the plate of food. The attacked man reaches behind him and pulls out a knife from his belt, then lunges at Ulrich, but he swerves and avoids the blade. Ulrich grabs Robinson's hand and forces it down on the table. The pair are locked in position, both scowling at the other. Other guests look over, at the sight of the two men fighting, and the maitre d' approaches them. Gentlemen, I must ask you for some restraint. Ulrich releases his grip, waves a hand dismissively at Robinson, and sits back down. His food arrives, and he starts to eat. After a couple of minutes, they are both calmer. You got more jobs we can do, man? says Robinson. What you got in mind? Drugs? Security? Girls? 
That's what my guys are good at. What about guns? says Ulrich, making a sudden look at Robinson to see his reaction. Not done any, replies Robinson. What sort of numbers are you talking? Big, says Ulrich. I need a team to oversee the transit of a delivery from the Russian border through Ukraine and Turkey to Syria. I don't know, man. That's war zone stuff. My guys ain't got the experience. Up to you, if you don't want to hit the big time. I already got the big time. Don't you worry about that, says Larry. But I'm choosy about what I get involved with. Gun running needs a whole deck of security around it. I can go with others who have more balls. I got balls, Ulrich, he says with anger in his voice, then drops the level of emotion. I don't know if I want more jobs with your guys anyway, given last time. Ulrich shrugs and continues to eat. The curtains are drawn in room 251 of the Gestad Alpina Hotel. The in-house doctor packs up his bag and leaves Dr. Michael Hill to rest after being caught in the incident earlier in the day. The Swiss police had been cursory in their interview with him, and Riverside wonders if they know he's a member of the British Security Services. There are cuts on his body, where flying glass fragments flaked his skin and released blood. He moves his leg, and can feel some pain below the knee. His work phone rings beside him, and he starts to roll over to pick it up, but a shot of pain hits his leg. He manages to grab the device and falls back down onto the bed to relieve the discomfort. He rests the phone on his chest, picks up the call, and switches on the loudspeaker. Riverside, says the voice from the mobile. It's Lawton. I'm interested to know how it went. Successfully, says Riverside but his voice gives away a less perfect reality, which Lawton has heard many times in the voices of field agents. Did something go wrong? I incurred some injuries, says Riverside reluctantly. Did the two of you fight? Two enemy combatants attacked us, sir. One civilian dead, two injured. I have minor cuts, nothing more. Who were they? asks Lawton. No idea. You didn't kill them? They escaped. What about Blackhawk? says Lawton. She got away, says Riverside. But they could have killed her later. They chased after her. Are you confirming Agent Down in the field? Negative, says Riverside. I have no intel. What's our next step? If she's alive, I'll have to wait for her to respond once she has seen what is on the hard drive. And if she's dead? says Lawton. We'll deal with that if it happens. There's a pause. You need to make sure this works. I'm aware of what's riding on it, Sir Stephen. This is more than just bringing in a rogue agent, says Lawton. Go on. We suspect that Blackhawk is the mole, and that she's laying a trail using people she knows will leak to create a fictional narrative that she is chasing the mole herself. It's perfect cover. Clever, if that's true, says Riverside. 
She's our most likely candidate. What evidence do you have? He says. Has she leaked before? That's all eyes only information, I'm afraid, says Lawton. But safe to say that there are several agent terminations in the last year that have been a result of information that has been leaked. I didn't know, says Riverside. That is why we put our best man on it. You. I'll do all I can, Sir Stephen, says Riverside. But she's a very sophisticated agent. There's no guarantee our plans will be successful. I realise that, but this is as serious as it gets, says Lawton. Riverside notices that Sir Stephen is being unusually directive. His field training tells him that there is more to this than he is being told. Up to this moment, Riverside had thought his objective was to bring Gabby back to London for debrief, until the powers that be feel happy that she is manageable. Now the operation is taking on a much more sinister line. Riverside will have to rethink how the whole plan works. I'll be in touch, sir, he says, and rings off. In her car on the way back to France, Gabby switches off the radio that has been tuned in to the listening devices in room 251. The flat selected by the spooks for Geraldine and Stuart is on the first floor of a 1970s block on the southern outskirts of Berlin. A development of 200 apartments, all the same, once the cutting edge of architectural panache, now leaking, greying containers of people. Whether had been grass on that spring day in 1972, when the mayor opened them, there is asphalt. Whether had been flowers in planters, there are seats with paving slab tops. Inside the flats, aluminium frames support floor-to-ceiling panels, so there appear to be no walls along the back half of the place, where condensation clings to the glass for five months of the year. Geraldine unwraps the flowers she brought earlier and arranges them in a vase in the middle of the kitchen table. She has tried to make it as homely as possible inside the flat, creating something that even her mother would have commended her for. The doorbell rings and she looks at herself in the hallway mirror before opening the front door. Welcome home, she says. Stuart is standing in the porch, wearing the same clothes as on the day he was stabbed. He steps over the threshold and she takes his coat. Then he walks into the main room and trudges slowly through every part of the flat, before going to the sitting-room window and surveying the outside. Geraldine watches him take it all in. I was given some money by Murphy to get you some new clothes. They're in the bedroom, she says, pointing. He goes to change and emerges ten minutes later. You look nice, she says. I've made some tea. They sit either side of a small square table in the kitchen. She pours him tea and cuts him cake. How do you feel? she asks. Still trying to understand how my quiet life has turned into this. Are you scared? she says. Not any more. I was after the stabbing, but I know we're doing the right thing and the chief will look after us. Did you ever find out who poisoned you? 
she says. How did you know about that? Uh, I... She stammers. One of the nurses mentioned it. A mistake was made, that's all, he says. No one tried to poison me. The nurses thought it was deliberate. That's not right, he says as adamantly as she has ever heard him speak. After a moment the discomfort fades away, and they talk more about the hospital, about his holidays as a child, and why she doesn't like prunes. The light of the day casts a moving background to their chatter, and time ticks by without either of them realising it. She laughs, and he is captivated. No one has given him this much attention, at any time in his life. "'What about this chap who is going to give us the information?' says Stuart. "'He's called Alexander,' she says. "'We don't know when he is going to do it, but they'll tell us beforehand.' "'What is the information?' "'I don't know. Something about what this gang is doing, I guess.' "'How long will it be?' says Stuart. "'A few days, I think,' she says. And he smiles at her. Linny pushes the open door to the Villa Bianca restaurant in Hampstead and is shown to a table. She pulls the tie out of her ponytail and lets her chestnut hair fall about her shoulders. Stephen arrives ten minutes later. "'A good day, darling,' she says, looking deep into his eyes so she knows what he will say before he does. Stephen pauses to give due consideration to her question and carefully selects the right word. "'Difficult,' he says. "'Anything you can talk about?' "'It just seems as though there are a number of things going on that are acting in concert and not for the good of the service,' he begins." Too many fingers in pies, too many inquiries, too many people interested in things they have nothing to do with. What are they asking you? That's my concern, says Stephen. I'm getting the distinct impression that I'm being kept out of it. Haven't you told me many times that the service only works effectively as information is on a need-to-know basis? She watches the man she loves. That's true, but something's different this time. There are operations in Europe that I should have been briefed on, that I know I haven't been. What do you think it means? says Linny. Black ops, maybe, or eyes only. But at my level I should at least be aware. They value you, Stephen, I know they do. You'd soon know if they'd lost faith. Would I, Linny? Of course, she says. You're one of their most experienced senior operations people. Think of what you've done in the years you've been there. Think of the people you've protected, the secrets you've kept from enemy hands. You should be proud. Lily? Hmm? She murmurs as she looks at the menu. What if I told you that there are secrets that I have kept from you? She looks up at him. For a moment the years fall away and she can see the innocence and the passion of the younger man who she first met. His dreams and ambitions had driven him on in those days. My darling, most of what you do you can't tell me about anyway. She reaches across the table and touches his fingers. Do you know what you're having? I'm starving. His sense of isolation 
clicks on another notch. Outside in the dark, it starts to rain. At the end of the meal, the waiter places coffees on the table, and Linny spoons one sugar into her cup. How's your case? Getting a bit hairy. My client's defence rests on the confirmation of information from a source within the security services. That won't happen. Really? She wonders at his sudden bluntness. I had an MI5 chap give a witness statement a couple of years ago. Anonymously, of course, via black video link. There's a feeling in the service that we let too many people give evidence over the last decade, says Stephen. It damaged us internally. But it's justice, surely, she says. There are some things that we get involved with that are hard to explain to civilians. Things that people are better off not knowing. You and your old boys' games, she says. It's endearing. But the Cold War is over. Whoever told you that, he says, looking directly at her. She lets the pace of the conversation drop, a trick she has learned over the course of their many discussions about MI6. The air gap allows them both to breathe and halt a rolling juggernaut before it runs away out of control. She knows that he is right in part, but she also knows that he is old school when it comes to MI6 justifying itself. In his eyes, she knows, they should be able to do anything in the name of protection. In her view, the world has moved on, and she can see that he has struggled to do that but it is true that some secrets are best left unsaid. It reminds her of her affairs over the years, and how she could never break his heart by ever telling him about them, despite them being such a vital part of who she is 